Amen. Guys, would you grab hold of a Bible? We're in Daniel chapter 7 this morning, continuing a verse-by-verse study through this book, hoping that God is meeting you in it and will this morning. So hopefully you got a Bible, you're making your way to Daniel 7, whether that's on a physical Bible or electronic, both work, we invite you to be there with us. If you're with us online, we extend the same invitation to you. Grab a Bible, be with us, follow along. May God speak to you through His Word. That is our great aim. And so we want to take one more moment and pray, and I'm going to lead. I'm going to ask that you would pray as well. Let's ask that God would indeed speak to us through His Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. God, would You help us right now, right in this space, in this time and place, to hear from You? Would You open up Your truth to us? Would You give us understanding? But in that understanding, would you speak to hearts, each one of us individually, showing us what you have for us from your word. We ask for it now, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to put in your lap, as it were, an intelligence briefing about the man that we know as the Antichrist. Yet that's where we are this morning, where God wants to unpack for us. In many ways, I want to almost imagine giving this to you. Now, as we head there, let's pause before we even dive in and just try to ask a question. Why should you listen? Why should you even want to know about a man that the Bible calls the Antichrist who is coming? I mean, let's just be honest it might not be the most appetizing of subjects. It might not be the most exciting. In fact, you might even find yourself thinking, I don't need to know this. Maybe like that place, if you were there, maybe high school, maybe college, you had to take one of those courses that you definitely did not want to take, but you had to take to get the degree you were in. And you remember having those conversations with yourself like, I don't care about this. I am going to forget this the moment I finish taking the test because this has no relevance whatsoever to my life. Well, it's possible that as we approach this this morning, that that's exactly how you feel, that you might find yourself thinking, well, why do I want to know? Has this any bearing on my life? And I want to tell you it does. Why? Well, for a few reasons, for certain, more, but let's just begin because God tells us. God puts it in His Word. We have it here. We have it other places in Scripture where God unpacks for us about this man that's coming on the scenes in the future that we know as the Antichrist. All by itself that God tells us about it makes it enough for us to want to know. There's not anything wasted. There's not anything in this book that God, you know, is unnecessary. Everything that's needed for life and godliness is found here. So just believing that should make us want to understand but let's go past that. What do we need to understand about it? Well, some part of it is helping us understand Satan's ways. Yeah, the Antichrist will be the preeminent man empowered by by Satan himself. That Satan's going to have his way and his power is going to be manifest in this man in the future, and yet that helps us understand Satan's ways. That Satan's ways, they don't change. He he doesn't change up his tactics. They are always his tactics. So if we can see it in the man in the future, we can understand it today. Paul would say it this way in Corinthians. He said, you know, lest we should be taken advantage of, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He says, we should not let Satan take advantage of you or I because we know 
how he works, his devices, his tactics, his schemes. We understand what those things are. We, we get a chance of gazing into those realities. And so he says, because we know that, we shouldn't let ourselves be taken out of the way by that. Well, how do you know that? How, what, how would you know what Satan's going to do? Well, that's what God gives us. And that's part of even understanding this, that to see this man who is empowered by Satan, we see his ways. And therefore, we become to recognize what he works even in our day. Well, so one sense, we see Satan's ways all the time in the way he's working, but let's even press in a little bit more. It helps us recognize those who are antichrists, those who would be those that we should not be paying attention to. Well, track with me just for a moment. God help me to make this make sense very briefly. Here's the thing. The Bible tells us about this man who's coming, the Antichrist, who's going to come on the scene. Now, I believe that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you know him, you are never going to see this man with your own eyes on this side of eternity. The Bible tells us that the rapture is coming, that he's going to take us out of this world. And then after that, the man of sin, this man of lawlessness is going to come on the scene and to lead the world astray. So that being the case, you're never going to see that happen. It's not something that you're getting aware of so you can watch it take place. He's telling you of something that you are not personally going to experience. Now, track with that a little bit more. Neither was Daniel. I mean, Daniel gets this dream. He gets this revelation at least 2,500 years before this man ever comes on the scene. Daniel would never meet him personally, but he needed to know. He needed to understand. He, it was helpful for him to understand. It's helpful for you and I to understand. Not only because we recognize what he's doing, but it also helps us be aware of others that would kind of fall into a similar category. What do you mean, Jim? Well, that's what John tells us. John warns us in 1 John, he says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. He says, I've told you, you already know this. There's a man coming who we know best as the Antichrist. He is coming on the scenes, and you know this, and we need to know this this morning. But then he simply says, even now, many Antichrists have come. So yes, there is a single one. There is one who is going to be the very just epitome of everything that Satan's wanting to do, but there are others that fall into those categories now that Satan is always seeking to work. And so if we can see this one, then we can also recognize other counterfeits that would be Satan's design and also be protected from them. That has to be part of the point, has to be part of the reason why you and I are given chapters like this that help us gaze into this. But can I tell you there's a better reason? The very best reason for you to see the Antichrist is that so you can see Jesus Christ, that we could see him, that we would see him. It's always about Jesus. Jesus is the real, he's the right Christ. In fact, to say it in the most simple way, it's always about Jesus. Jesus told us everything in this book traces to Jesus. Everything here is given to us and in its best end helps us to see him. You know, it's an interesting thing. We are called to see Jesus and know him, but sometimes one of the ways that can help us maybe in ways that we weren't anticipating, is to see the one who is opposite him, to see the one who's very unlike him. 
And that could help us recognize him. That's what we want to go to. That's going to be certainly our aim this morning as we approach this and long that God would help us to see this one who's coming, but in this to see Jesus. Okay, so those are reasons. Those are reasons for you and I as we seek to want to unpack and unfold this chapter and begin to understand this one who is going to be called, we call him the Antichrist. A couple other quick things and and then we'll dive straight in. Hey, this is a second message in Daniel chapter 7. So if you missed last week, then it's, some of it's going to be confusing because we're not going to be able to re-say everything we already saw. We already saw that Daniel had a dream that was giving him a, just a wide view of eternity, a gaze down into eternity, lots of stuff that was helpful in that. So if you missed that, you might want to go back and get that. But also as we approach this morning, we want to see the Antichrist through the lens of Daniel chapter 7. It's not that we're not going to make any other references, but we're not making all of them. I mean, it's not like an entire, like, hey, we're telling you everything that the Bible tells us about the Antichrist. We're just looking at what God is showing us in this chapter about this man whom we know as that. So with that as a name, let's kind of catch up. Let's pick up a little bit of the scene. You have your Bibles there. Daniel chapter 7, just for a little bit of context, let's read a little bit of what we saw last week. Go back to verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. So this is Daniel. This is his dream. And visions on his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the, main, the, the, down the dream telling the main facts. And Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea each different from the other. And he goes in through and unpacks those visions. But we're going to skip down to the last one, the fourth one. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth, and it was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, And it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Then Daniel gets a vision of God judging the world. We talked about it last week, but pick it up in verse 11. I watched then because the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning flame. So all that kind of led us to this place where Daniel sees this stuff and he sees where it ends. He sees the kingdom of God coming. He sees Jesus coming to reign, which is in verses 13 and 14. All of that's amazing to Daniel. But now he just takes us into it because he's trying to figure this whole thing out. And so we pick it up where we left off last week, verse 15. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved and my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. It's just kind of fun. It's like, man, this is like, wow, it's going to trouble me trying to figure this out. So I came near to one of those who stood by and I asked him the, the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the, the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, 
which will arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth of the, about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns, which were on its head and the other horn, which came up before which three fell, namely the horn, which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Wow. So Daniel's trying to figure this out, and he's invited us to gaze at it with him. We want to see in the midst of this much again, but we want to look at this man that Daniel describes as a little horn. Yeah, it's an interesting description, but it's not the most popular. We most of all know this man as the Antichrist. There's lots of other terms given in the Bible for him, but it's fair to say this is the one that we best recognize. And it's worth just a reminder that anti has the idea of, in many ways, instead of or in place of, opposite of, kind of seeking to step into that he would be recognized as the one who would be this, that the world would look upon him as the hope of mankind. Lots of other descriptions that he's the man of perdition or the man of sin who best kind of just shows that whole thing. But Daniel sees him as a little horn. He recognizes him in that, and that helps us get to kind of our first conclusion our first kind of just kind of gazing into who this man is. The first thing we really recognize is that he's going to come in a very political way. What do I mean by that? Well, it's worth just understanding that when we use this term horn, it's a biblical picture that's used all the way through the Bible in prophetic imagery, and it's a picture of, of kings and kingdoms, of reigns, and, and so a horn is that. And so the Antichrist is going to come as a little horn. You know, we read it, but I recognize sometimes your brain can kind of just go slush when you're reading all those words. Let's just focus on that description. Go back again to verse 8. He says it to us this way. He says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them. says it again in verse 20. says, the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell. Go again down to, to verse 24. He says, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones and subdue three kings. So here's what we gaze. We gaze into this thing, and he lets us know that the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to come on the back of, or in the place of, on the back of these ten kings, or these ten horns that will yet arise. In other words, as we're watching this, and this is where it gets a little bit hard, because there's no way for me to go back to what we talked about last week, we get a gaze into this fourth beast, who is a picture of Rome that came, but also Rome that's coming, that we get a place where it's in this whole place where these 10 horns are going to arise out of it. It's very likely, very possible, that that's probably how Rome will reemerge into history. 
If you know much about history, you know Rome is an interesting kingdom. Unlike Babylon and Media Persia and Greece, it was actually never conquered. It just sort of disintegrated. And yet, the Bible seems to anticipate that it's going to reemerge into history. Now, how is that going to happen? And I'm just going to answer that question by saying, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no I mean, anybody that tells you they know doesn't know. God doesn't give us enough to know. But it's very likely that 10 kings or kingdoms will arise to reform and, and, and reestablish that whole thing. And this man, the Antichrist, will rise to power. Now, here's what we know. When these 10 horns rise to power, it's going to be a very short-lived power. Revelation gives this to us. It also gives us some similar imagery describing the Antichrist, calling him there the beast. In that description, it gives it to us this way. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they received their authority for one hour as kings with the beast, with the Antichrist. These are of one mind, that they will give their power and authority to the beast." says, here's these kings coming. John says, they're not here yet. They haven't come on the scene yet. When they come, it's really going to be a very short-lived thing. They come on the scene really only to help this man rise to power, only to help him become that. And so that's what's going to happen. God is helping us understand how that's going to happen. But that also gives us a glimpse into this man, because if I can put it to you this way, the Antichrist is going to be the most eminent, powerful, and popular politician that has ever been. And that's how he's going to come to power. Quick FYI, that's not a slam against all politics. I just want to be very, very clear about that. You know, if you're involved in politics here uh, this morning, please understand Daniel was involved in politics. Daniel served in the kingdoms. He had just power. He was raised. He was exalted. There's places of that. God uses people in the political realm. We exult in that. We're glad that happens. But understand, politics is messy, and it's often hard, and yet that's exactly how the Antichrist is going to come. He's going to come politically. He's going to come one who seeks to step into political power literally over the whole world. And as you're gazing at that, maybe again the thing that we can best kind of learn from this is how very different that is from Jesus. Jesus didn't come and doesn't come in political ways. It's not the way that he did that. It is not the way that he worked. Even when they tried to do it, he always refused. I think about it in John. It gives it to us this way. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. I mean, they're just like, okay, you're going to be our king. I mean, they're going to force Jesus to do that. And he, you know, kind of powerfully and wonderfully just skirted away from that because it was never what he came to do. But it was what they wanted. They wanted a political messiah. They wanted someone who would, you know, lead the nation and by war and by power and by, by politics to control the world, and Jesus never did that. In fact, it wasn't his work. The Pharisees came to him at one point and asked him, so how is your, how's the kingdom of God come? We talked about this Wednesday night for you guys who were here with us in Luke's gospel, but Jesus answered that question by saying the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. He says the kingdom of God that Jesus is building, it's not something that moves across a map. 
It's not something that's going to be a political movement that you would be able to recognize. It's something that's happening where? Inside you. That the work that Jesus is doing is changing people from the inside out. That the way that we become a part of the kingdom of God is to become saved. And that's not something that happens through politics. That's something that happens personally. That's the way that he does it, and that's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to recognize that because political force is, in many ways, power and manipulation, and it's not what he's doing. Our Savior is incredible. He isn't very different than that, and it's worth your seeing even that contrast. Now, I probably could include this next part right there, but I separate it because I think it's worth noting. His politics, the Antichrist politics, are going to be marked with a striving, with a a using and using up of people. Yeah, we watch this whole thing, and so we're seeing the Antichrist come to power, and he does so not only on the back of these ten kings, but he literally tears three of them up. Hey, just notice it there back in verse 8, so you can see it again. Tells us how Daniel says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Can you almost imagine it for a moment? So here are these kings that are rising to power, but something happens. Maybe they get in his way. Maybe they begin to kind of realize, hey, this isn't what they want. We don't know how it's all going to happen, but something happens and he destroys them. He, he literally plucks them out by their roots, whether that's going to be, you know, a war, whether that's going to be like a nuclear bomb going off wherever they are. He's going to destroy three of these who started to be in favor with him and begin to resist, and he destroys them. Again, it gives it to us in verse 20. And the ten horns which were on the head and another horn which came before which three fell. Or in verse 24, he just talks about it, that he's going to subdue three kings. So we're watching this whole thing. We're watching this one who takes advantage, this one who uses and just schemes, crawling up over people, just using them to get where he's going. And I just think that's worth noting, that that's how he does it. Now, he's not the only one. I mean, I'm just going to say what some of you would recognize. Sometimes that's how people are in the world, sinfully that way. I remember working in the bank and, and, and talking to another person who was kind of working their way up, and I remember having a conversation about our future, and she just looked at me and said, I'll do anything to succeed. I'll climb over whoever I have to climb over. I'll, I'll hurt, I'll wound, I'll tear down. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to get in my way. They're, they're, no matter what the cost is, I'm rising to power. And I remember just thinking, wow, it's just like, it's just kind of terrifying, you know, to kind of think it through. And then I see it in this one who is the Antichrist and say, here's this one who says, I will tear down anybody. I will get, anybody gets in my way that they will, I'm going to rise to power. Now, as you watch that, please again, for the greatness of it, see how very different our Savior is, how very different his coming is. I love the way it's described. Jesus quotes it out of the book of Isaiah in Matthew 12. God speaking of Jesus, he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. God speaking of Jesus says, This is the one I'm pleased with. 
This is the one who's doing it well. He's going to bring in justice. He's going to bring in righteousness. He's going to bring in how to be right with God and right with people, and he's going to do that. And yet, as he describes that, he tells us, he says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Simply put, that's politics, that's power, that's manipulation, that's striving. He says, that's not the way Jesus came. He didn't come in this self-promotion and this place of, of just forcing his way forward into the world. Why? Well, one of the reasons is what it tells us. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will trust. It's such a beautiful picture. I hope you can imagine it with me for a moment. I want you to see a bruised reed, like you're looking at a marsh and there's a reed that's there and some animal has come by and nicked it and it's just barely hanging on. I mean, it would take nothing to just knock that reed over and tear it down. I want you to see a a smoking flax. You're looking at just a, a flame that's almost going out. It would take a breath to blow it out. And it says Jesus is coming in such a way that he doesn't do that. He doesn't wound. He doesn't leave in his wake destroyed people who were, you know, in his kind of moving into coming to to please the Father. He takes care of, and there's a gentleness, and there's a beauty to the way he does that, and I find my soul pleased. I find myself thinking, I'm so glad, because the Antichrist is coming in a very different way. He's coming in a forceful way, in a way that's destructive and using. Well, we watch that. So it's helpful. We're beginning to see this one who's going to come on the scene, political, striving. And as he tells us that, he lets us know that this one comes to power and does so with pompous words. Pompous words, yeah, it's kind of an interesting description, isn't it? I mean, you can almost feel it just hearing it, but Daniel was intrigued by it. I mean, in some ways it caught him. It's worth just seeing it again. Go back to verse 8 one more time as we've seen that a number of times. There in verse 8, It gives us this picture at the end of verse 8. He says, And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. He's got this brilliance, this smarts, these eyes that seem like they take in so much, but these words, he says, that are pompous words. Verse 11, he says a similar thing. Daniel says, I watched, then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. In other words, Daniel's like, that just like, when I heard that, when I heard these words, it's like, what in the world? You know, they just caught Daniel's attention in, in a way that just intrigued him. So that there in verse 20, he gives it to us again. He says, and the ten horns which were on his head and the other horn which came up before of which three fell, namely the, whor- the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke with pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. That he comes on the scene, and in one sense he comes across pompous, great. It could be a picture that the Antichrist is going to use powers of words, that he's going to be a good communicator. And that's an interesting study all by itself. History really has been moved so often by communicators who can put forth words and power and move. And and so in one sense, it seems to anticipate that that's who he's going to be. But it's more than just great words, which is one way to translate that word pompous. They're blasphemous words. They're, They're words that actually attack and countermand God. Notice in verse 24, as he gives it to us, I'm sorry, verse 25. 
and he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. His words literally attack and stand against the Most High, stand against God. His words will assault everything that that is. Now, we don't have time to give it to you in entirety, but here's the point. Not only is he going to do that, it's going to work. In Thessalonians, it lets us know that the whole world is going to believe his lie. That when he propagates this lie, it's going to become universally believed. So that in Revelation 13, it tells us the whole world is going to fall under his sway. The whole world is in that sense going to believe his lie. The whole world is going to hear these words, but it's worth again saying as simple as I can say it. It's a lie. It's not the truth. He's bringing into this a lie that the world is going to believe, and therein lies its tragedy. In fact, when Thessalonians talks about it, it says those who have disregarded the truth will be given over to believe that lie. As you watch this pompousness, as you watch that in a, in a simple way, I just want to tell you, Jesus is so different. Jesus is, is one who, who comes, and when he comes, he comes humbly, he comes holy, he rightly represents and speaks God's truth. He rightly represents, and when he speaks, it is that. Oh, so much we could say, but let me give it to you this way. In John chapter 1, when it pictures Jesus, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When John uses this term there, it's a description of Jesus in powerful and just wonderful ways. He's the Word. He's the one that speaks, that represents, that declares who God is. His words are true. His words are right, and His words are powerful. The Antichrist comes with deceptive words. He comes with pompous words that that move people away. And when He comes... Those words have an assault on God's saints. Yeah, you probably already saw it, but see it again. It lets us know there in verse 21, when Daniel's watching this and seeing all this happens, he says, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. He was warring against the saints. He tells us again as he gives it to us down there in verse 25, and he shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Okay, quick technical answer. Who is this referring to? Well, technically speaking, this is in the tribulation, and the saints at that point in time are going to be the Jews who believe in Jesus, as well as other people in the world who, who believe during the tribulation. Those are the saints that he's going to war against. That said, catch with me, that's a term that's used for God's people all the way through Scripture. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you are by God's description a saint. That is one literally means set apart, that belongs to God, that is His in this world. And so as we're watching this whole thing, we get a sense of a a picture of who this man is, that he has a war, and he's warring against the saints, he's persecuting them or literally opposing them. Yeah, if you have a different Bible translation, it might translate in verse 25 differently. Again, the New King James says persecute, but it might even have a little notation in there because it literally means to wear them out. It literally means to oppress them and wear them down. And it's not speaking of of a physical wearing out, but an emotional 
weariness. This is what he's doing. I mean, this is his plan. This is how he works. And I just want to tell you that for somebody here this morning, this is the thing you need to hear. Honestly, it was one of the things that captured me the most in my study this week. It's almost one of those Charlie Brown, knocking over Lucy kind of things, and aha, that's like it. Like, that's exactly the right word. This is the place where it says, here's what Satan is doing. He is seeking to wear you out. He is seeking to wear you down. Why do you need to understand this? Well, again, this is Satan's MO. This is what he does. There's a spiritual war that's taking place. And one of his tactics is to wear saints down. Here's what I want to just put before you. I think I'm speaking to some who, that's a pretty good description right now. I mean, like you try to figure out life right now, you think, man, I just feel weary. It's not physically. I feel emotionally weary. I feel like I'm being worn down. And sometimes you're trying to even put your finger on it. Like, what is this thing? And sometimes you have a propensity to define it like it's all you. It's just me. It's just kind of the way I view the life. I want to hold out to you that one possibility is that that's actually satanic. And Satan does his best work in the dark. When you don't realize it's him, when you don't realize what he's doing, so often that's where he gets his greatest victory. But how good it would be right now if you would recognize that's exactly what he does. He's warring against God's people, and he is wearing us. He's, he's trying to make us weary. He's trying to wear us down. Now, hear that, and then see Jesus. Because, see, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. Jesus is restoring. Jesus is upholding. Jesus is giving strength. There's so many verses that give it, but I'll just give you one that Jesus speaks there in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Can you hear it? I mean, it's one of those amazing things. He's like, are you weary? Do you feel like you are just, like the weight of it's pressing you down, your labor, your heavy laden? He says, come to me. (laughs) I mean, come to me and I could give you rest. It's not just a one moment kind of thing. It's like, hey, let's do life together. Let me be the source of your strength. Walk with me, take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest. God gives us this invitation all through Scripture. I think about one of the famous ones there in Isaiah 40 where he just tells us that if we would wait upon him that he would renew our strength. We'd be able to run and not be weary. We'd be able to walk and not faint. We'd be able to mount up with wings like eagles. God says, if you would wait on me, then you would find that strength. That so often is the great need, that there is this space where he's inviting us to him and that would combat the weariness that's there. Hebrews would give it to us this way where it invites you and I to say, let's run, the race, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So it's like, there's a race, there's a road that you and I are on. Let's run. Let's run this race with endurance. Let's not give up. Let's not give in to weariness. How do we do that? By seeing Jesus, by fixing our eyes on him. In fact, he goes on to say, for consider, that is focus, think about, see him, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Isn't that not amazing? 
I mean, is that not exactly to say, okay, that's exactly what this thing is. And so as we're watching this whole thing, what I need you to understand is this is what Satan does. And Jesus fights against it. But here is our problem. Sometimes, because we fail to recognize that Satan is attacking us, we fail to run to Jesus, you know, for his strength. And so we live in this place where we're becoming weary instead of recognizing, you know, that's exactly what Satan does. You know, I'm going to go to Jesus. You know, I'm going to go to the one that would give me rest. We, we live in this place of becoming weary without recognizing that part of that is the spiritual war. And if, for, if this gets even one person to kind of wake you up and just recognize, hey, if that weariness, this soul weariness is a part of it and you feel that Satan is trying to wear you out, recognize who he is and run to Jesus because Jesus is enough. He will give you strength. He would give you rest. He's exactly what you need. And there's a need in this to see this spiritual war that is so real. I know for me, that's certainly what I need, and I recognize that we see that here, and we watch all that happen. Well, this war with the saints, this pompous words that the Antichrist is going to do, well, one more time, it kind of goes back into that reality because he does so with a very powerful propaganda. Yeah, notice with me what it says again there in verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute or wear out the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Yeah, he's going to seek to change things. He's going to seek to rewrite history in many ways. He's going to seek to come into there and seek to rewrite it in its favor. Now, that's a whole big subject, but it's worth just putting it to you in a simple way. It's kind of attributed to Winston Churchill. Not everybody agrees, but if it's true from him, it simply is that quote that says, history is written by the victors. There is a certain amount of truth in that way. That in many ways, whoever is in power has a propensity so often of rewriting history to their own favor. That's very much what Satan does. That in one sense, we think about that. That's how he's going to work, and it's going to happen when the Antichrist comes to power. He's going to seek to convince the whole world. That propaganda, that lie, that big lie that the whole world's going to fall into. And it's a sad thing, and yet it is an interesting thing to say, okay, I see it. I see that's what he does. How very different is Jesus? He is one who is, in his nature, faithful and true. Everything he is is true. Not anything is propaganda. Not anything is is kind of rewriting history. Tons of stuff, if we had times to talk about, we would say. I find myself even just thinking about this book you hold in your hand, and one of the amazing things is that this is not propaganda. I mean, the honest thing is, if I were writing the Bible, I would have changed it. I don't know about you. I hope that's okay to say. You know, if if I were writing about the the, the heroes of the Bible, I would not have been so honest. Like, maybe I would have left out the the chapter on David's adultery. You know, if we could have just ended with David, a man after God's own heart, man, isn't that great, you know? And, and, And we have a propensity of doing that, and yet God tells us the absolute truth. And he's not afraid of it because he is truth. In fact, let's turn and just think about it this way, because maybe that's what we need to hear in a powerful way, that Jesus is faithful, he is true, and in the midst of a world that is so often moved by lies, maybe in this generation we're needing to hear it more than any other. Those two words, faithful and true, are found four times in the book of Revelation. Uh, The first one is in Revelation chapter 3, 
where it says in 2 Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. And, and Jesus is the one speaking. And he writes to this church that maybe is the last day's church. Some believe that the Laodiceans pictures of the church in the days right before Jesus comes back. And if it's true, he says, here's what I need you to know about me. I'm faithful. I'm the truth. I am the one that speaks truth. I, I am that. In fact, when he comes back riding on the white horse in Revelation 19, he says it again. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. To see Jesus is to see one who is absolutely faithful, absolutely true, and that holds us. In fact, he goes on to say it in Revelation uh, chapter 21, and he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. Like, this is the truth. This is faithful. You can believe this. And he'll come back to it and say it one more time in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. I kind of take from that that in this kind of last days generation that this is what you need. And again, for somebody here, it may be this more than anything else I'm saying that you need to hear. Maybe you're so aware of the lies of this world and you're so aware of deception and yet to hear one who is like, I always tell you the truth. I am 100% faithful. That's Jesus. He's the one that is that and so incredibly attractive in that regard that he would be one that we could absolutely trust in. Okay, so we're reading this intelligence briefing on the Antichrist. We see who he is, political, striving, pompous words that absolutely wear down the saints. His propaganda is going to be powerful. The world's going to believe it. And he's going to have a very limited reign. Yeah, that's what he unpacks for us there. So we read it there. We'll just read in verse 25 again. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute or wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hands. Then the saints will be given into his hands. That's probably a good description, but maybe not enough. Quick FYI, if you have a New King James Bible, would you look there at that in verse 25, and would you look at the words, the saints, and I hope in your Bible it's italicized. If you don't know what that is, can I quickly tell you? Those are added words. Whenever the, the Bible was being translated from Hebrew or Greek into English, sometimes the very sentence structures were a little bit chunky. And so sometimes to, to kind of fill out sentences, they added words that weren't actually in the original text. When they did that, they always put it in the italics so that you would know, hey, that's there kind of added to kind of make the sentence work, but it's not actually in the text. And maybe here, reading it without it is more accurate. Because if you take those two words out, you would read it this way, then shall be given into his hands. What will be given to his hands? Everything. Everything. He's going to move into power. The Antichrist is going to win. He's going to be victorious. He's going to become the political ruler of the world. Everybody's going to believe in him. Everybody's going to believe the lie. Everybody's going to do that for how long? For three and a half years. Yeah, that's what it says. Go back and see it. Verse 25, end of it, then the saints shall be given into his hands for time, times, and a half a time. I don't have time to explain entirely, but let me just quickly tell you, what does that mean? Time, times, and half a time. It is a term that's used throughout the Bible, and it speaks of three and a half years. 
Now, God does this in an interesting way that sometimes he takes this three and a half year period of time and he'll use that phrase. Sometimes he'd call it 42 months. Sometimes he would give the actual number of days, but it's all referring to the same period of time, which is the last half of what we know as the tribulation, the last half of seven years that are coming on human history and three and a half years of that. The Antichrist is going to get everything he wants. He's going to be in power. He's going to be controlling. He's going to be, have dominion. He's going, to, he's going to war against the saints. It's going to feel like he's winning and everybody else is losing. And that's what he's letting us know. But hear that this way. The Antichrist is going to be in power for three and a half years only. <laughs> I mean, that's like it. I mean, three and a half years. I mean, that's all. I mean, his victory is incredibly limited. I mean, three and a half years is not a very long time. Contrast that to the kingdom of Christ. Contrast that to that Jesus' reign is going to be forever and ever. Notice again how it says it. So we read that. It says again in verse 25, the end of it, the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion and consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Yet Jesus' kingdom is a forever kingdom. Hear that from his standpoint, that it is that way for him, but hear it as it affects you. If you're a follower of God, if you're a saint, if you're one that's been set apart from him, there's something about that for us to hear, and he says it over and over. We read it right there. You might just notice it again in verse 27. It says, you know, that the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, to the saints of the Most High. Yeah, he's going to give that to us. Go back to verse 18. See it again. It says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. We're going to, oh, it's worth just making sure you catch it, receive this. We're not gaining it. We're not causing it. We're not warring for it. He's giving it to us. He's giving it to us. We're going to receive the kingdom for how long? For three and a half years? Forever, even forever and ever and ever. I mean, that's what he's telling us. He's letting us know that that's what's coming for us, that this reality is ours. Again, verse 21, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Wow. I mean, I just want you to hear this. I just want you to understand this, that partly what we're gaining from this intelligence briefing on the Antichrist is indeed he's real and indeed he's powerful. But man, what a limited thing. How different is our kingdom? How different is what we have? I think about how Peter would tell it to us in 1 Peter. He says that we have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have heaven coming that is incorruptible, undefiled. I mean, it's amazing forever and ever. And Peter just simply says, 
in this, in this joy of heaven, we greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while. If need be, you have been grieved by various trials. I just like the way that said. Satan is going to have his heyday, and he is working even today. And part of that means sometimes we go through some hard things. But you know what? So little. It is so little compared to eternity. It is so small. It is so limited. It is so minuscule in comparison to what's coming. And certainly that's got to be a part of this, is that we see who is coming. We see what he is, but we see how empty, how limited, how not lasting that is. And so in that, we see the kingdom of God. We see all that's coming, and we get to see this man who is this. So here in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's giving us this perspective of this man, the Antichrist, coming politically, striving, pompous words, wearying the saints, his propaganda, but how small is his reign? So what do you do with that? What do you do with what you've just heard? What do you do with Daniel chapter 7? What do you do with this kind of briefing that's given to us? Well, can I answer it one more time? You know, there's a number of things that you could do with this, but I want to begin by saying, hey, you should make sure that you're on God's side. I mean, if you could see the war of the ages taking place, there is a sense of recognizing which side you want to be on. To say it in a simple, maybe a little bit silly way, not original with me, there's really only two types of people in the world, saints and ain'ts. (laughs) You're either a saint that you belong to God or you ain't and you're not his. And those are the only two categories that there is. If you can see this, make sure you're a saint. Make sure that you're on, be be the one that says, God, I'm on your side. I want to be a part of your kingdom. Yeah, it might get rough on our world for a little bit of time, but it's only a little bit of time. This is forever and ever and ever. I want to believe in Jesus. And I want to tell you, if you're here this morning and you're outside of a relationship with him, then we get the opportunity of telling you that is what Jesus is still doing. He is still saving people. He is still rescuing people from sin, he is rescuing people from Satan, and he is making them saints. And today you can be a saint. Today God could rescue you and you would be set apart for him, and if that has not happened for you, then we long that it would happen. But if it has happened, it ought to be a joy. It's like, I'm on that side. (laughs) I know whose side I'm on. I see what's happening. I see where our world is going. Yet seeing that still should make us understand that partly we have to make sure that we recognize what's ahead of us and the need to endure, to see with wise eyes wide open that this world is a broken space and we see where it's going. We might not be there in those last days when the Antichrist comes to power, but we're in a world that's heading that direction. And so there ought to be a sense that we, with eyes wide open, we say, okay, I see what's coming. I mean, that's partly what has happened to us here And that helps us to recognize where we are, but one more time to say, I want to endure. I don't want to get weary. I don't want to, you know, give up. I want to endure to the end. I want to be faithful because I recognize where I am. But that's still one of those places that if you can see it, honestly, it is really a somber reality. Well, it was for Daniel. I mean, I don't know how you take this study this morning. I'm not sure if you're like, oh, this is so much fun. I love learning about the Antichrist. Maybe that's you this morning. That's great. Maybe you're not so much. Daniel was not. He didn't really enjoy it. He lets us know. Go back and tell us what he sees. He tells us in verse 15 when he was watching this. He says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit. And the visions of my head, they troubled me. 
It's like, this just wow, weighed on my trust. They, they, they brought trouble to my mind. In fact, that's where he ends. He says it this way in verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. For Daniel, this understanding, it was a sober, kind of a little bit of a somber reality, and that's not a bad thing. A.W. Tozer said it this way, the Bible doesn't approve this modern curiosity that plays with scriptures, and which seeks only to impress the credulous and gullible audiences with amazing prophetic knowledge. He says, sometimes we have this place where it's like, oh, this is great. I get to understand all these prophecies. And, and some people are almost like, this is so much fun. But the honest truth is, if you see it, it might actually be a little bit sober. And I'm not saying it has to be that way for you, but I am saying for some of us it is. It's like, okay, so I get to see this man is coming. That's not so much fun. I mean, this is, I don't really like where our world is going. I don't really like what's going to happen. But I get it. And for Daniel, he kept it. Yeah, that's what he says. He ends the whole chapter. He says, but I kept the matter in my heart. Why do I say that? Well, it's kind of where I began. You know, there are some times that maybe you take a class in college or high school and you just know, I'm going to take this course, I'm going to get the grade, and then I'm going to forget it because this has no bearing on my life. And it might be how you even want to approach this. Like, okay, if I can forget this as soon as I can, that will be good. Daniel didn't. He says, okay, I I needed to see something, and I'm not going to forget what I saw. I'm not going to forget what I saw because it does things. It does things like what we talked about at the beginning. We see Satan's ways. We see the the way that he deceives and other antichrists that would come along, but maybe the most important, we see Jesus. And maybe through this, this morning, that that's exactly what God has been seeking to do. And so I'm urging you to allow that just to enter into your heart, to permeate it, and keep it in whatever God has spoken to you. So let's close our Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is we have open, and let's go and do that very thing. I don't know where God has met you this morning. I don't know what He's spoken into your life, but before we close, we want to give you this moment with the desire that whatever He's spoken to you, you will just process. Maybe it's a surrender to Jesus. Maybe this is your moment to become a saint. We urge you to surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you're his, and through this, God is trying to show you things, both about what Satan's doing in our world, about what's happening, where we're going, in ways that would be help and rescue and endurance for you today. I hope that you would just take a couple moments, talk to God about that, I'll do the same, and we'll close together in worship in just a moment. But right now, you take a moment and pray, I'll do the same thing.
God, thank you that you are faithful and you are true. Thank you for even speaking truth to us, even into some things that are hard to even process and thinking through this Satan-energized man that's coming and Satan's strategies in our world and, and just yuck. But thank you that you give us a, a chance to see both that and how limited, how it's not going to go anywhere, but your kingdom is forever, even ever and ever. God, thank you for the hope that is in that. Thank you for the hope that is you. God, I pray that even right now you would just help us to know that and, and find help in you, that you would be the one that would renew our strength. You would be the one that refreshes our soul. God, I ask for that for me and for all of us now as we trust you with all of this and our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.